From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast, where every week we have guests on and we explore the ways that we can rapidly progress the practice of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. This week, we're going to be talking about how health and safety and HR can work together. Today, we've got a a very special guest, Wade Needham. He's General Manager, Environment, Health and Safety at Fresh Country Farms of Australia. So thank you, Wade, so much for coming along. Lovely to be here, Josh. Thank you. Now, uh, you'll notice conspicuously I'm all on my own. Uh, Unfortunately, Joel couldn't be with us today. Wade had to duck out for when we were planning on recording this, and fortunately we were able to reschedule, but Joel couldn't make it. But we'll have a hopefully good conversation and and plenty of things to share with the audience. Sounds good. All right, great. What I thought we might do uh, as a gentle introduction is to maybe discuss what are some of our favourite podcasts. Uh, Joelle and I wanted to talk about that a little bit last podcast, but it went over an hour, so we thought, hey, we'll, we'll maybe start to talk about that in some of the other pods that we do. So maybe I'll turn it over to you, Wade. You know, what are some of the things that you like listening to? So I'm actually going to be a little bit disruptive here and say that I don't listen to any podcast anymore, but when I say that, I do read transcripts. So what I have found is around, you know, whilst podcasting you know, is quite great for some people. Um, I'm a reader. I love reading. Um, I like using you know, and imagining how that comes forward. Um, and, and often some of the stuff around podcasting you know, just doesn't resonate with me listening to people. So um, to me, that's more important uh, around it doesn't really matter what format you get the content and, and, and you sort of see that. So, But acknowledging that you do lose a bit of the interplay, obviously, if you can't see or hear people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for, from a podcast perspective, um, I'm really big fans of Farnham Street. Um, I love their work. I love anything that, that sits there and talks about mental models um, and, and sort of challenges me on how I pull information together and stimulus and then, you know, p- pull that into some form of, um, you know, model that then I can act upon in the world and, and create impact. So I'm really a big fan of that. Tim Ferriss was, was an early favourite. Um, obviously, um, Andrew's Tap Into Safety podcast, um, Safety on Tap, sorry, podcast. Um, I've been on that a couple of times. And I love listening to different people. Um, and also there's a couple of other, you know, you know, Todd Conklin's is great, you know, um, Disaster Cast is good with um, Drew A and, and those sort of guys. So, um, and, and, you know, um, Andrew Proven puts out some good stuff as well. So, I mean, there's an absolute plethora of information out there um, that, that you can go and grab. And I think that's the important part because, um, you know, if you want to learn and you want to rapidly get get better and get quicker, um, the only way to do that is, is both consume content and then use it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've got to say, I'm always a little bit embarrassed when people say, you know, what book are you reading or what are some of your favorite books? And I actually don't consume too much knowledge through reading myself. Um, I think I got burnt out doing my master's and I was like, "Ah, if I read another journal article, I'm going (laughs) to... And, that, and that's it, and, that, and that's the beauty of, of sort of the, the, the world we live in is you choose your medium, you choose, you know, who's providing the advice, um, and then you choose whether to take it on board. So I, I think the, the, the sort of hyper-customization you can have these days um, really puts the onus back on the individual as to, you know, go out and find it and go and get it um, and, and then consume it in the method that, you know, most suits you. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's heaps out there, and I'm happy today to sort of add to some of the, uh, the information out there. 
Yeah, well, hopefully people will start mentioning the Psych Health and Safety podcast when they start mentioning some of the other ones. Uh, I personally like, um, yeah, definitely uh, The Safety of Work by Drew Ray again and uh, David Proven, um, something that I like listening to when I'm swimming laps. Um, uh, I also like uh, Laurie Santos's The uh, Happiness uh, Lab, uh, which is a great way of looking at wellbeing and some of the science around um, how do we make people uh, happier and reach a, a peak level of flourishing. And then um, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, revisionist history is is fantastic, and then um, the other one I was thinking of is um, uh, how I built this by uh, with Guy Raz. Uh, speaks yep. to a lot of startup founders, which is really inspirational, given that we've got a startup ourselves. Um, and uh, Business Wars, where you hear about um, uh, some of the big uh, business battles, I guess, like Blockbuster versus Netflix. And I won't spoil how that one finishes, but um, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's really great hearing uh, and then dissecting i guess how these companies either were successful or some of the mistakes they made and and what made them uh, uh not successful mm. yeah well great um well tell us a bit then um about yourself wade um i know you get around the uh conferences quite a bit around australia and internationally and um you do get asked to speak on podcasts and, and other events from time to time so a lot of people will know you already uh but we do have a broader audience than just health and safety there will be um hr practitioners psychologists um and and so forth on this uh listenership as well uh so tell us a bit about your background yeah. Yeah, so um, I suppose from my side is is um, I got lost. Um, so went to university out of high school and then did um, three years of financial and managerial accounting. Um, realised through the end of that in discussions with a partner from Deloitte that um, that wasn't the life that I wanted to live. Yeah. Um, so made a very choice very quickly and early on that maybe wellbeing was important and the importance of pers- people cultural fit. Um, so did sort of shift into HR business management for my last year, got the bit of paper, um, realised I, I couldn't tie a tie to save myself and ran away to the construction industry for the next three years and um, helped and worked in civil construction. So I learned to build and be part of, you know, subdivisions, uh, evaporation ponds, um, port, uh, rail, and, and all those sort of, you know, large sort of pieces of infrastructure in very lovely places like the northwest of Australia, um, down south at Ravensthorpe. So, um, you know, very, you know, fly and fly out. So got very exposed at quite a young age to um, working in normally an older cohort, but being very far away for long periods of time from our friends and family. Um, and then halfway through one of those projects, they realised I um, was quite literate and understood what health and safety and HR was and uh, got thrown the JHA. Um, and that was my job for the next sort of six months is write the JHA out every three days at this mine I was at. So um, whilst 90 people sat around waiting for me to write the JHA, um, and then toddled off and got some uh, post-grad quals and then, you know, went in earnest into health and safety with a civil provider, went through the um, the major miners and um, worked in uh, and built some quite large um, resource construction projects that mine port and rail, um, and then jumped over this side of the uh, country to help out and build some of the tunnel infrastructure over in Sydney. Um, and then from there, jumped into government services, um, defence, healthcare, um, citizen services, um, and um, after that, now I find myself in the agricultural se- sector. Yeah, uh, amazing. So it, it's really great because we see psych health and safety as something that's applicable to all industries, right? It's not just one particular industry like physical health and safety. Um, and it's great that you've got that broad range of experience and uh, across so many different sectors and, and now a new, new one again. 
Correct, and I think that's the interesting side of, of the the subject matter we're talking about today. Is you both you both experience it yourself, but you're also then looking to uh, either enable it or, or to prevent it as well in a professional capacity. So um, that's one of the, the the really interesting things for me that creates a bit of a dichotomy is that you have to live and breathe it both yourself, but also you are just as much at risk as to other people, even though you maybe your 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 chosen your chosen field that you're do, you're operating within a business about. Yeah. Now, now, many people would know you as um, head of health and safety, safety for Serco APAC, um, but you're in a new role now. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about you know what are some of the fun things that you're learning in, in your new role and, and a new industry? Yeah, so um, I'm in the agricultural sector now, and so I'm looking at both um, uh, farm gate activities and then post farm gate activities. So I'm working with various leaders in different um, agricultural verticals associated with um, improving their maturity, associated with how they manage health and safety. Um, you know, very different maturity, very different um, you know uh, yeah, incident rates and frequencies and severities. So most people would know that you know the, the severity rate and the frequency rates associated with both workers' compensation claims and incidents. Um, in the agricultural industry is one of the highest in Australia, if not the highest. Um, so definitely a, a very different cultural mindset, but also very different market dynamics as well. So um, hasn't had typically the the larger corporate sector, such as the mining industry or the, the regulatory in, input and in in factors associated with construction and, and that union involvement. So um, whilst it, you know, it is still high risk, it's just had different you know sort of factors that, that affect it. Um, and typically a lot of people still think of farming as a sort of mum and pop operations um, rather than as, as businesses and organisations. And I I think a lot of the commentary is sort of focusing on that now that whilst um, farms are a place where, 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 where people live and, and work um, and enjoy themselves and, and raise children and live very fulfilling lives, they're also workplaces as well. And so I think there is um, additional focus now being placed on sort of how do we both mature the industry, but also acknowledging that it is still a unique type of occupation. Um, and we don't want to lose that unique cultural aspect as to why people um, live, work and operate on farms. Yeah, terrific. Um, and sounds like you're doing something that you love and, and love, love of learning, I guess. You're learning new stuff every day and challenging yourself. Correct. Yeah. That's right. And mom, my mum's side was um, wheat and sheep farmers from um, WA, uh, Narrabeen. So um, I've sort of got a foot in that camp. So uh, I, would, I would definitely say that I'm a, a you know, concrete cowboy, pretend, so to speak. So <laughs> I'm definitely not a ringer or anything like that. Um, but, um, you know, you like to pretend and gull yourself. But, um, but yeah, look, you're exactly right. It is great applying knowledge that, that has worked in other industries and, and continually testing yourself in new industries, but also with different leaders as well. Um, you know, different, different abilities, different challenges, um, and often agriculture culture it's very low spans of control so oh sorry not very very low diff, um, distance from ceo down to actual employee whereas in often a lot of the other contexts i've worked in there's multiple levels of management yeah terrific now um the podcast obviously is more around psychological health and safety for employee mental health um and i first met you actually at a workplace mental health conference that happened in sydney just as covid was uh, starting to hit and uh, you were up there talking about some of the initiatives that you had done uh, in your previous role. So yep. um, would there be anything that you could share from um, some of those things? Yeah, and look, I suppose I'm a bit, 
Yeah, I, I think everyone attacks um, this area very differently. And I think you do always attack it from, you know, what you've learned in the past or what you've experienced, be that either a lived experience, either through like yourself, through study and then through application and, and then through the, the use of, of, of tools. And then or you've got people who have gone through it and come out the other side and, and, and have something to share, tell and to help people. Um, so, so I think everyone uh, sort of comes at it differently and sort of, I suppose, to, to sort of outline my, um, the way that I come at psychological health and safety is really probably from a position, um, from an occupational hygiene position, um, which is probably a little bit different to other people, whereas I sort of treat it like load and exposure um, and really demand an ability to cope. Um, versus I, th I think a lot of people come at it more from maybe focusing on the individual and, and sort of, you know, being either bringing it um, or then having the resources to, to fend it off. Um, and, and so I think, um, you know, whilst at Serco, there was very different risk profiles because we had corrections um, associated with the risk profile and then you had healthcare, which, you know, security um, within sort of emergency rooms and departments. And then you had mental health, um, patients with mental health illness that you were dealing with as well. So um, I think the other thing is the, the common thread that ran through them all for me was, is that always dealing with them and, and acknowledging that, that this was a risk like any other, um, be, it health, be it health, safety, environment, um, you know, political um, business interruption, it is another form of risk. And, and so you, you have to take that lens, but you also have to acknowledge that it is largely very subjective. Um, people are different and that people are individual. Um, and, and so then the, the ability then to influence that and, and to do innovation really then comes from, um, you know, how do you get people on board to either improve um, uh, and promote sort of the thriving side uh, and sort of perform and, and potential or, or then the other side is really how do you then prevent harm to people? Um, and then at worst, um, you may have people, you know, who, who have very different backgrounds and, and who have may be very diverse. And, and also you may be required to be inclusive of people who have um, certain conditions in the workplace. And then you're really looking at how then do you mitigate. So yeah. to me, I was trying to balance a lot of the things between the three of those. Um, and so, you know, whilst, um, you know, we looked at really partnering with our uh, employee assistance provider, we were also looking at things like how do we look at job dictionaries or, or job task analysis and, and rather than taking the safety view of the world and having a qualitative assessment um, with residual and inherent risk, we looked at well, what was the load being placed upon people um, and, and really challenging ourselves to really have criteria and um, and sort of being able to articulate to people what were they facing in their job. Um, but also not just saying to people, what are the bad parts of the role, but actually then looking at those and using those assessments to actually inform our hiring practices and talking to people who were excelling and thriving in those roles as they were crafted, what is the type of person that likes these roles? What makes that person good? What makes that person want to come back and get out of bed? So I, I think for a lot of it, um, you know, while some things might be um, in, seen as innovative for some, often a lot of the time we looked at, at embedded processes and making them better and, and largely that was just helping leaders be informed of the, the risk profile that came with that load and giving some words and, and sort of qualitative um, uh, processes and toolkits for them to use. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, I really like how you're using that integrated model and, and not just focusing on the mitigate illness where a lot of organisations seem to spend probably 90% of their time uh, when it comes to employee mental health. Uh, and then combining that, you know, prevention of harm and promotion of flourishing. Uh, I've also yeah, come across yeah, another. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Wade. 
No, it's, it's always tough. And you always start with, you know, you, you look like even the safety side, we blame people in human error. Um, we always start there, it seems to be. That's the first rung of the maturity. Um, you know, it's, it's only when, you know, either we've got nowhere else to turn or when, you know, um, the business community rounds on that position and realises that, hold on, no, it is the conditions we're putting people in and the way we craft our jobs. So I, I think there is still probably a little bit of a run to play with, you know, fitness fruit bowls and, and flu shots uh, and, you know, notwithstanding any of that, that, that importance of those things, um, but they're always going to be a complement and they're just, um, you know, if we only focus upon them we're only band-aiding the symptom yeah absolutely and and all those things like you say are important and if you think about your hierarchy of controls they probably do fit in in there um maybe they meet the equivalent of a ppe um in the hierarchy which health and safety professionals will know would be the most uh, or least effective uh control in order to uh, address existing hazards so the only challenge I have with calling it PPE is very much that I know if I put a class five bit of earring protection in my ear, it will protect me to class five. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but also that you know, and being the only factor that the variable that you know I need to install it correctly, basically in my ear. The worry I have with treating things like EAP or things that mitigate harm is that both you don't take away the, the, the actual hazard and B, um, sometimes we assume that they work and are effective. And so they might work for some people, but often we're not typically um, relying upon a consistent um, uh, factor that, they, that can present then a, then a reliable outcome. And so whilst not degrading any of those three things, um, that is the challenge I have is that when, you, when, when you're sort of advocating for these things, it's often a case for you need to try it and see if it works. Um, but for some people, um, you know, EAP doesn't work or, you know, um, you know, there may be, you know, vulnerable people who, who can't have flu shots, um, you know, and so you end up with this really hard one-size-fits-all blanket when, when actually, you know, um, even the best of PPE, you need a fit test. Um, and I think that's the other thing that as we personalise the employee experience, we're going to get better at doing. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I would um, contend even that EAP wouldn't even be, fall under the hierarchy of controls if we're making those equivalents. It would be more like your injury management. If someone's had um, a, a muscle um, strain or broken a bone at work or something like that, then they need to go away, they need to have physio, they need to maybe have surgery, that sort of thing, uh, and then return them back to work. So EAP is about helping people who are already distressed where the controls have failed and they've developed some sort of, even if it's not time off work, um, it still is, you know, workplace stress-related um, uh, conditions. Yeah. And, and that's it. And look, a simple thing people can do is, you know, that, that most EAPs will have manager assist lines, um, you know, and there, there is often the catch call that, you know, you ring up, speak to someone from EAP before it becomes a problem. Um, you know, often we don't identify risk factors as as, 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 as risk factors um, until they actually cause us harm. We have to touch the whole plate. Um, but, but that's one thing people can do is that, you know, often, and, and not speaking for all, um, you know, uh, load that becomes placed upon people, but that, you know, that, that relationship that, that individuals have with their manager is absolutely crucial. And absolutely. so that, you know, the, if where managers can reach out and, and either receive coaching or, or, or have a second perspective associated with how the delivery of a certain messages, workload or, or news to somebody could affect them and then, you know, how, how that could be received. I, I think those things are, are well, uh, are a great use of EAP. Um, and I think also a, a nuanced approach of, of how we get people to do these things can improve as well. Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, and this uh, also kind of ties in with um, the traditional hierarchy of controls versus the CDC total worker health hierarchy of controls, which I think is far more applicable to workplace mental health. Um, so the the bottom rung instead of uh, PPE, it's actually promoting self care or encouraging self care. Yes. So that's where yep. your fitness, flu shots, and um, um, yep. fr- uh, fruit bowls fits in. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's often the challenge with, with quite traditional leaders. Um, you know, well, hold on, mental health something you bring to the workplace. We just exacerbate it. Well, you know, that's the I'm not tough enough argument. And, 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 and you know, I, I fully acknowledge that life will, you know, give cause people um, heartache and, and, and curveballs. And, you know, I was, I was talking to a colleague who recently, um, you know, a loved one committed suicide. Of course, that's going to knock you around. You bring that to work. You can't separate it. Um, but, you know, also at the same time is that while individuals are employees and they work for us, I, I guess it depends on how you look at it. Um, that person will be going through and will lower their productivity for a certain period of time. And that is ultimately, you know, a very reasonable thing to do. And, and really it's contingent upon an employer looking at the upside, acknowledging that, you know, if we get, you know, great productivity and great outcomes out of people, unfortunately human performance is variable. We need to acknowledge it and, you know, whilst we can do as much as we can to sort of, you know, uh, you know, not, you know, lower the dips, um, major milestones are going to occur in people's lives. You can't prevent divorce. You can't prevent parents passing away. So I think there is this real shift acknowledging now that, you know, the, these things occur. Um, yes, you can't prevent them. Yes, we will support you. Um, no, we can't take accountability. Um, but also, we, you know, what is good for you is good for us. And I think that's where the additional investment and awareness and drive is coming from. Yeah, I, I really hope um, in the not-too-distant future that we have a lot of people treating those outside influences on uh, employee stress and well-being the same way they do with physical health if someone's trying to take care of their physical health by going out and playing an active sport like footy or basketball or you know they're going to the gym and they have an injury well the company is going to support them understanding that there's certain things that they can't do at work because they're injured or that it's going to exacerbate the the injury even though it didn't didn't occur in the workplace and like you say it's not compensable it's not the workplace's fault but we support those individuals understanding, hey, if we support them, they're going to be loyal. They're going to continue to, you know, increase what they can do over time. Yeah, and that's that acknowledging that risk includes opportunity. And so um, it sort of, you know, takes me back to a bit of a, a, an age-old argument used to have in mining and construction in FIFO that, you know, often people would be playing sport after hours and, and normally, you know, someone may have a couple of beers while they're playing indoor cricket or whatever um, and an injury would happen. And then is it work-related? Is it compensable? All these lovely things go down. And ultimately, you know, yes, it is compensable. Um, you know, yes, it is work-related. Um, however, if you stop those social and physical activities or try and restrict people's behaviour, it will have a byproduct. So I, I think that's the other thing which quite nicely leads on to that if one enabling function such as either safety, HR or, or any of them act in isolation, unfortunately, then they create byproducts which then either will reduce well-being but either they will also you know increase turnover lower engagement and ultimately not have and not improve your workplace culture and and not enable you to achieve the outcomes you want in your business yeah totally agree uh as you mentioned that is a good segue so we should probably start talking a bit more about today's topic which is how can hr and hsc become more aligned and and work together in this uh so you've got some pretty unique experiences i guess and uh I'd, i'd be really interested in your observations about how you've seen i guess the roles kind of divided and um, where there maybe have been uh, compartmentalization, compartmentalization of uh, activities. Yeah, and I, I think 
acknowledging that the first thing that, that that I suppose moving forward is that employee experience is is, is not just a buzzword. Um, you know, people and labour are scarce. Um, people are the source of you know productivity, output, and impact in your business. Um, and ultimately, um, we need we do need to acknowledge that the business structures that are currently in place are largely based upon businesses imposing that structure based upon people's qualifications and or experience. When really, um, a lot of the time, we're now shifting our business models to how do we serve our customers better, customer is king, all those types of things, um, and, and how do we deliver upon needs that maybe they don't even know, whereas where we are starting to see that more and more in the employee space. So I, I think that there will always be a place for diverse um, uh, qualifications um, to, to be within a business. Um, but also, I think we, we, we need to challenge ourselves as professionals to stop thinking in functions and start thinking in how do we serve our employees. And, and when I say serve, that doesn't mean doing exactly what they want, um, but that means working with them to enable them um, in, in, a, in a manner in which you know is beneficial for both business and for them a, as individuals. So um, I think that's the first thing to acknowledge. And then the second thing is around um, the whilst both functions deal with people, they come from very different places and very different, um, typically, uh, learning uh, as well. So um, you would find that there would probably be more um, HR university-educated individuals, whereas safety is still predominantly a lot of people come from, um, you know, sort of shop floor upwards. Um, and I know that is turning, um, but ultimately language use, um, uh, legislation focus, um, those types of things, whereas in you know the the IRER space is quite natural for for legislative focus to be in place. Whereas if you're in talent or organisational development, legislation plays a very little focus. Um, so ultimately, as well, um, I think you need to both acknowledge the differences of where people come from, um, the language they use, and, and both appreciate that from a strength based perspective, we're both individuals' functions and sub-functions within those functions are going to bring something to the table. Um, and, and that's how you get people to work in nicely. Um, and, and by nicely, I mean for the benefit of our employees, which which ultimately is what we need to do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I often see myself, there, there is a divide. And I've got to say, traditionally, I guess, health and safety hasn't had too much to do with employee uh, wellbeing unless something goes wrong and then they get involved in injury management and return to work. Yep. Um, so I, I see, and we'll talk more about some of the skills that health and safety can bring, but I find often with uh, the HR approach, it is a wellness approach. And if it's a wellness approach, that means that it's a voluntary thing. So if we're going to run an initiative like a lunch and learn, or um, we're going to you know, do a fitness activity or something like that and call it a mental health promotion activity, we'll get people to put up their hand and say, hey, look, um, you know, who would like to be involved? Um, we think it's really great. Hopefully as many of you will get involved as, as possible. Uh, and then they're surprised when, you know, 20 or 30% of people uh, actually put up their hand and do it. And it's the same people every single time who Correct. are putting up their hand, right? Uh, and these are the people who are already engaged. They're thinking about self-care, obviously. Um, many of them are probably going to the gym or being active already, or maybe they've got a headspace or a calm already downloaded on, on their mobile phone. So they're already engaged. Uh, and we're not really getting to the people um, who we really need to get to, um, which are the people who are so busy, they can't attend the the, uh, the lunch and learn that, that uh, has a guest presenter. Yeah, that's right. 
and, and sort of this is where I sort of come back to the occupational hygiene approach. And, and they have this concept when you're doing risk assessments in occupational hygiene called similar exposure groups. And so what you do is you group people or individuals, um, and that may be in a location or a role that have similar exposures. And so then you can take that one step further and then you can sort of start creating personas or, or sort of, um, you know, uh, sort of stereotypes of people. And, and that helps you focus upon that the hazard is not consistent and is not weighted the same for every single person, um, which is why we don't put, you know, um, you know, people that are investment managers through working a heights course, yeah. um, but also acknowledging that, you know what, we may make some things mandatory for roles that have higher levels of um, load placed upon them. Um, and that's okay. But that, runs counter to this equality thing of trying to get flexibility for everyone, trying to pay for everything. So I think also that's where one of the real strengths that, that, that health and safety um, resources can bring to the table is this ability to, to very easy to, to articulate the, that risk and load, um, you know, is, is both um, acknowledging the consequence and then the likelihood and then the ability over time for that load to be placed upon somebody. And then, Secondly, does that person have the capabilities um, to then withstand that? And that's that's that question which talent then comes into it is that, you know, of course, somebody who has a higher level of experience and skill and, ex and has been in a job longer is going to be able to take a higher load because of they can do things faster, they process, they, they, they taste less um, effort to do things. Um, while somebody starting out will second guess themselves, not know the shortcuts, um, you know, um, have more attacks of imposter syndrome, all those types of things. So unfortunately, a lot of this, um, a lot of the um, hazards, whilst, you know, we know them, um, often the subjective part is the individual and we're, we're a bit loath to um, call out sometimes that some people are better at handling load than others um, because of, you know, obviously at the moment equality, you know, is something that a lot of businesses are pushing for, but unfortunately it may create unequal, unequal outcomes, like you said, only offering courses to people who are already engaged and are already getting the benefit for it. Yeah, sure. I mean, one thing that stuck out earlier was you're talking about treating workplace stress as an occupational hazard, uh, and you can apply occupational hygiene um, principles to that. Uh, and I, I agree. If we look at, uh, if you're talking about the um, exposure groups, like you, you were just talking about, then uh, we look at places like, say, education, uh, financial services, banking. Um, you know, these people, like you say, they're not at risk of falling off the top of a roof. They're not going to you know um uh lift a heavy box <laughs> that is probably the biggest uh risk from a physical perspective maybe a manual handling risk so maybe that's a bad example yeah. but uh they're going to be exposed to workplace stress but um w even though that's probably the biggest risk to these individuals becoming ill or, or harmed at work uh, we're not actually treating that occupational hazard as something that you know, is a mandatory training requirement. At the very least, if we talk about the very bottom, an administrative control for this hazard would be let's train everyone or let's give everyone access to our resources that are going to help them to take care of themselves. Um, yeah. And, and I think that also stems from, if, if we tie that back into a, a talent perspective, typically, you know, most people, when they first got promoted into a management role, um, may have been in a casual job or, or may have been, you know, uh, you know, in their first or second job, it was because they were good at their job. 
um, you, you then, you know, looked around and you just got the higher pay grade. Um, and, and, you know, did you get additional training with it? Uh, and often it was sink or swim. You are know, good at your job, therefore you will be promoted and then you'll be great at management. Um, that happens all the time. We don't see that as, you know, we don't see as training managers so that they're ready to take the next step as a health and safety mitig- uh, risk mitigation. Yeah. Um, you know, these are those concepts that blur across the functional lines, but ultimately, you know, by getting our people into a position where they can comfortably make the transition to a higher role um, where they may be looking after people or they may be taking on additional responsibilities, workload, time zones, whatever it is, um, you know, we're, we're, we're helping them adjust um, and then that will have benefits for both them, um, making sure that they both can do the role and, and are at a higher success rate of continuing the role, but also then the flow-on effects of those individuals because, you know, the people they manage, you know, there'll be less micromanagement, there'll be less, you know, focusing and trying, you know, not trying to protect their own patch or or there's less time that the individual above them that's managing them needs to spend with them. So I, I think at the other time is around... Um, merely doing you know and so the way i look at this is around well you know if if we wanted to mandate and make sure that our people were ready for the next role um it, you know, does it have to be called the health and safety control could it not be working with talent just to make sure and to improve the rate or the internal promotion rate or the stickiness rate of internal promotions as to how long that they're, you know, time to competence. Um, you know, those metrics and, and other metrics are one. And, and often we try and chase our own metric when actually helping another function will have a byproduct for us. Um, and, and that's what when I often see people don't have the, they don't understand the you know, input activity sort of, um, you know, outcome impact sort of model. Yeah, that's a really great observation and I think it's going to be really beneficial for the listeners to have health and safety professionals and HR professionals and psychologists all coming in and we can understand where we're using maybe the same term to to, to explain different phenomena that we're observing. Yeah, and look, there was one organisation I worked with that used to set out that if you were to lead a team, um, you could only have a certain amount of individuals under that leader. Um, and this was a major minor. And so the contracts we issued had to sign on that, that you know, supervisors could only have so many people. They had to do four units of competence. Now, you know, these were to an AQTF level. Um, you know, those types of things, whilst um, they, they, that was quite rigid in their application, that was their risk threshold. So they, as a major minor, said, we acknowledge that poor supervision or low supervision or lack of supervision contributes to fatal events. Um, Being proven, you know, WA Mining did a great review between, I think, 2010, 2017. You know, a great many amount of deaths um, occurred when um, the individual of leader or supervisor was less than a year in the job. Um, and it had even less experience on site. And so you can't take that, um, you can't stop people getting promoted or stop getting new jobs, um, but it's around how you enable it and how you plan and how you onboard and, and those types of things. So, um, you know, but when trying to take that somewhere else, another major miner acknowledged that, that, that it was a great idea, yet the commercial boundaries between, they didn't want to be seen to be, um, you know, saying to a contractor that you need to do this because they were afraid should they take that next step and, and say to people, you must do this, even though it was categorically, you know, clearly the right thing to do based upon, you know, some of the research, um, they were worried about taking on that liability. Um, and so I think that's that's also um, important to acknowledge is, is that while prescription can sometimes be very good, we have to be conscious that principle first principles are important and making sure first principles are embedded into the context of which we're operating is the most critical thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that also ties in with the uh, importance of senior leadership and board level support for these initiatives. Um, And yeah, I I believe you've got some commentary around how health and safety and HR can work together about trying to get it on the agenda and, um, you know, get the time, budget, resources available to do the activities that we need to do. Yeah, and and often... You know, if you've got two voices, you, your voice becomes louder. Um, and then when, and also when you're an exec and, you, and two different people are coming to you with, and they and they've written something together that meets both of their outcomes, to in, in your your brain automatically jumps to, well, hold on, I, I'm paying X and I'm getting double benefit. Um, so so I think then that you know shows that both a it is important, b um, you know that you understand finite resources in a business and and that you're not. Um, you know, obviously asking for something just because it's topical and, and, and also that, you know, you've got commitment from others in your business that they'll work with you um, on, on getting these outcomes. So I, I think that's, re- that's really critical that if you are going to try and push something to a board and exec level, the ability to maximise your chances of, of getting something both on the agenda and approved and then funded, um, you know, only the more amount of voices you have um, will obviously improve those rates. Um, I think the other thing is that you that you can most people probably don't appreciate is that um, you know boards have to set risk appetites for the business. Um, they set you know which markets they can enter, um, you know how much capital they need to deploy per year or you know return on investment. Um, a, a very similar process has to occur for non-financial risk. Um, you know we do it often a, a lot, and you hear it. You know most companies have golden rules or they have certain you know rules that you have to follow. That is the board setting a risk tolerance that you if you do a task you will have this in place if you step outside um, bad things will happen for you um, unless that it's a systemic issue and, and hopefully the business has a just culture process that you know doesn't just admonish the worker actually looks at why the conditions um, cause the event um, but I think that's really important to acknowledge the fact that you know you need to help call out um, non-financial risk to your board and get them to understand that their current either um, lack of determination on as to where does the risk tolerance line sit um, can cause grey and then that may um, help them or, or sort of not help them when it comes down to um, proving due diligence. Um, and I, I think that that sort of model where this, those, you know, those, those principles of due diligence um, could really be leveraged by HR to get that resourcing to improve those levels of learning, but also for things like lowering span of control, increasing spend on either coaching um, or, or leadership activities, or, you know, even just down to, you know, getting those, that people, um, people, um, people data, you know, just sort of, you know, don't just do a, a one thing pulse survey, um, and stop asking people, you know, sort of, you know, questions of are you happy? Um, start asking them questions about, you know, um, how does your manager support you? Start asking them questions like, you know, do you feel like you've got no one to go to? Um, you know, all of those indicators that are actually more representative of people's both um, longer term state, but also asking and seeking that information around those things that, that employers can control, which is resources, work direction and job design. Yeah. And I find there's still a lot of board education that health and safety and HR can do as well because they're not always going to be aware of, of the key risks. Uh, I can tell you, for instance, I was on an independent school board for six years here in, in Western Australia. And just before I came off uh, early last year, uh, we had a couple of people who looked at the risk register 
and uh, to bring it up to, to spec, they basically went to um, a large uh, company, uh, government organisation, looked at their re- risk register and basically adapted it for the school environment. Um, it was interesting, though, because under operational risk, they had all the usual working at height, manual handling, confined spaces for a school whose largest mm. population of employees is school teachers. Um, uh, and then when it came to stress, they had lumped... Uh, student stress and uh, employee stress together. And the mitigation was we've got a chaplaincy service or if things get really bad, they can go see the uh, psychologist through our employee assistance yeah. program. Um, and so fortunately I was still on the board at that point in time and could recommend, hey, look, uh, if we have a look at some of the codes of practice, the uh, DEMA's information here in WA, they actually have some really good guidance about psychosocial hazards and we know that in a school environment that workplace stress is one of the key hazards that we need to really understand and, and manage so we really need to beef that up uh, and put something in uh, our operational risks um, or in, in that area yeah and, and I, I think also one thing that, that people struggle um, when they are sort of communicating with boards is, is they need to understand what is material to the board, what is the board's role. Uh, and the board's role is to, you know, both um, you know, Id- identify and set risk tolerance for the, the executive team, but also, you know, they have a very limited area in which they play in. Um, and so you need to acknowledge that how do you communicate that what you're talking about is a material risk. And often if you're talking in a very big business, potentially a fatality whilst, you know, may have some, um, you know, horrible impact to, to both a family or workplace and those, um, you know, may not be as material as what people think. Um, however, if you start talking about something like Dreamworld and the reputational damage and the lack of revenue that that generated, um, you know, that may likely get, you know, that is the avenue in which to take. Um, so, so you have to sort of be um, a, a little bit, you know, don't take a, don't, you know, don't take a knife to a gunfight. You know what I mean, Jesus? Um, like understand the other person's perspective and the world you're entering and you need to educate yourself so that you can effectively translate what you know fundamentally and a passionate advocate of into a language that gets the outcome and impact you want. And often that is probably the key missing link between people having a huge amount of passion and lived experience and wanting to do something but being unable to find either the words that, that communicates that or keep banging their head against, well, why aren't they listening to me? Why aren't I getting things approved? And why don't they take it seriously? And, and they sort of place it down to bad leadership. Um, but oftentimes, it, it, it's just a not, it's a failure of, of a meeting of the mind, so to speak. Absolutely. We need to understand what boards are responsible for and what's going to get their attention. Uh, and, uh, we are going to have Dr. Rebecca uh, Michalak. Uh, on at some point she's got some really good case studies of when uh, things like even sexual harassment which can be considered a psychosocial hazard uh, when those things happen uh, what can actually happen to your market capitalization as a very large organization if that isn't managed well yeah and and that's the impact you you need to look at Um, and and so you know non-financial risk being reputation can be quantified in in stock price but also social license to play Um, so that's why you do find you know, a lot more organisations now have a lot more stringent um, accountabilities placed upon execs around, you know, dating and having relationships within the company. Um, you know, representative of, they will act if they believe that share price or revenue could be affected. Um, so, and they're very quick to do these things. So, I, I think, and, and notwithstanding the fact that, you know, this is a sole issue that people need to upskill their knowledge of what board does to, to get, um, you know, it's a two-way street. People need to come down and listen as well. Um, but also, you know, often uh, the board can't 
make managerial decisions that they can <laughs> um, recommend, they can promote and they can do, but also, you know, a managerial team has certain um, responsibilities as well. Um, and, and so, you know, it's sort of a, it's a bit of a dance where we all need to understand where we're playing. Um, but what I would also acknowledge is that markets, um, uh, be, be them either stock exchanges or, or sources of capital, um, so investment houses that, you know, typically are elevating their either, um, you know, capital requirements. So if you want capital, you have to meet ESG standards, for example, or, you know, insurers are not insuring some products. Um, that is a very effective way to change the workplace. Um, you do, it doesn't have to be legislation. So, you know, another source is, you know, AGMs, you know, shareholders are very vocal and, and do want lifting of standards. Um, you know, US, UN sustainable um, goals, you know, those are external impacts that we in health and safety and environment would look at, you know, our standards like 14,001 and, and, and sort of 45,000, you know, and our impacts and aspects and our stakeholder concerns and, and you know, and those sort of things. That is how we bring it forward. That is how we use our strengths. And then we partner with, you know, our, our HR and, and our other functions like compliance and risk to present a united front into the board to show um, this is how we can help you mitigate this risk or prevent it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it, it does fall under CSR a bit, as, as you say. And um, I, I remember reading a, an article where Bill Johnson, one of our ministers over here, was quoted talking about... Um, WA joining the Commonwealth WHS Act and uh, the expected changes in the next year with a greater emphasis on psychological health and safety. And he basically said this just reflects what society expects these days of, of our leaders and our organisations, that we you know care about the mental health and we have uh, practices in place that don't put the onus on the individual, but thinking about how um, the role of employers plays on, on wellbeing outcomes. Yeah, we need to acknowledge that the public health system is finite. Um, we have an amazing public health service in Australia, um, but also for those um, employees who may find themselves on the end of, you know, abuse from their managers, not just poor managers, but abuse um, or sexual assault or, or, you know, you know, illegal categories of action that people undertake, um, you know, they do end up in the public health system and it costs taxpayers. So I think the other thing is acknowledging the, the limitations of the workers' compensation system, um, the stigma still that's still attached with submitting a comp claim. Um, and the way in that scheme is managed. So um, I, I think there's a social good there um, that, that, that does, and as people become more literate into um, understanding, you know, that we all have mental health, it's both, you know, positive and not so positive. Um, and, and then all of the good work that's been done around Are You OK and those sort of things has an impact. And, um, you know, our elected representatives will change um, if we ask them. Um, and so I think broadly the macro trends point all towards this factor, um, you know, being a lot more uh, material to, to business moving forward. Yeah, and I think one of the other things uh, that uh, is one of the macro trends is insurance, right? Um, and a lot of people are finding it hard to get compensable um, recognition for, you know, uh, mental illnesses or workplace stress claims. And so yep. they just go to TPD. And from what I understand, TPD is on the verge of collapse because of all these mental health claims rather than them going through work cover or, you know, um, work, workers' insurance. Um, so, again, yeah. uh, Dr. Rebecca will talk a little bit about that one when she comes on. 
Yeah, and, and I think that's acknowledging that, um, you know, there was some great cross-sector work that was being done, I think, by Monash, um, you know, uh, under Comcare and some partners associated with the different schemes, even down from absenteeism right the way down through and, and the different schemes that, that could be entered um, that provide either medical or, or economic benefits associated when someone is ill or unable to work. Um, you know, and, and each scheme can be entered at various times. They can interact with each other, um, but also there's different tests and it's quite complex um, it's not easy um, so so scheme design and scheme use and and, and spending time the scheme you know in, in, in public health or, or private health which treats is always a factor um, but I think always does come back to um, you know you're looking at the cost versus when there is obviously a mandate and it's very easy to appeal to an organisation who is there to make a return on investment that hold on doing this not only prevents you from incurring cost, being insurance, absenteeism and such, um, but also then generates, you know, higher levels of engagement, higher levels of creativity, higher levels of profitability, higher levels of all of these things. So these are more and more being able to quantify. So I, I think... Um, you know, like safety in design is always better than, you know, uh, you know, a PPE down the other side. So, um, you know, these are lessons and principles we can apply. And I think the, the thing that I'd love to see more of and more health and safety and HR professionals entering and discussing is sort of when we're able to then adjust, you know, workplace design, um, either in the environment or in the job role side of things. Um, and that means entering conversations in tender conversations if you're a service business or, you know, entering conversations associated with mergers and acquisitions or through, um, you know, how we're going to do restructures and those sort of things. And often to get to those seats at the table, there, there needs to be a really strong understanding upon financial impacts. And so then understanding what you're asking for and what that means. Um, and if you're a 2 to 6% company, you're going to have less chance of, you know, changing workplace design than if you work for Atlassian. Um, but also at the same time doesn't mean the principles are wrong. Um, and so often people lack that understanding of that systemic nature of business and how, you know, moving small little wheels at other at certain locations can have quite a big impact to the person on the other end. So, um, you know, uh, someone in purchasing, changing, you know, um, looking at something and going, well, why are we, why are we ordering 10, you know, kilo bags of cement? We, should, we can order them 20 and they're, you know, 10% cheaper. That one stroke of the pen creates a double load down the chain. So um, I think as, as we can... You know, supply chain visibility becomes stronger um, and more visible. The same will happen to business decisions and how they affect our employees and and our clients and customers. Yeah, interestingly, you mentioned that because in ISO forty five thousand and three in in the draft, it actually talks about procurement and having to understand that because that can also cause workplace stress. Very much so, um, and and I think that um, we know the factors that affect. Um, and I think whilst they may become detailed and it's going to be an, and, and often it's seen as another level of bureaucracy, um, for it not to be seen as another level of bureaucracy, we need to understand the principles and embed it in the processes that are already in place. Um, and, and so I think if you, if, you, if you do chat and you partner with functions such as procurement and they can understand um, that um, if you change something that makes it easier for them or that they think they're doing the right thing, if they then, who may be re very well reporting to a CFO, the impact of doing this causes this. And so, you know, if, if you are then look, talking to a finance person, then potentially they then are an ally to convince the procurement person that, hold on, I acknowledge that you can have a couple of dollar win here, but that's going to have a multi-dollar impact to our insurance down here. And so... Um, you know, you have to enable people to have to both partner, but also see the shadow of their actions. 
um, not just immediate, yeah, but but into the future. Yeah, I'd be interested in your perspective um, while we're talking a bit about procurement as well, because one of the hurdles that we often have to jump, uh, being that we are a technology startup, is that when we go to large organisations, there is a requirement that we have an information security management system that is certified to 27001, uh, which is a gold standard for information security. So we actually had to go through the process of um, uh, uh, looking at all our hardware, software, procedure, policies and everything to make sure that we will comply and get certified to that standard. Um, I'm guessing, I haven't seen it myself, but you'd be able to tell me um, whether people have to, uh, some procurement um, requires uh, organisations to be have a um, OCK health safety management system compliant with 45,001. Yeah, if you're contracting yeah, or so typically, you know, subcontracting. Yeah, so it, tend, it tends to be the more mature um, industries have those. So obviously if you're entering into contracts with either major miners or constructors and those sorts of things, typically they may have to carry certain certifications. So whilst mining doesn't have to be required to, to have um, certification, they often design the management systems too. Um, and so often then you find um, supplier pre-qualification processes and audit processes, you know, is all around how do they reduce risks both to, you know, their own operations, but also to the people within their supply chain. So, um, you, know, you know, federally, you know, if you're above, your projects are above a certain level, you have to um, be accredited to the Office of Federal Safety. Um, you know, um, but often, you know, as much as certification and designing um, and having systems doesn't always mean that you get a, 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 a good performance and a good outcome. And so often, you know, paper safe, paper safe sort of outcomes can occur. We, we, we have processes in place and they make us feel safe and they make us feel like we're covering our ass from a due diligence perspective and a legal perspective, but they're actually not having any impact. So, um, um, Greg Smith, who's who's a, who's a WA boy as well, um, fantastic book. He wrote Paper Safe. Um, he's a great one to talk to. The fact that if you have paper, is both a, a sword and a shield. So you know, it is a sword that a prosecutor can use against you if you said that you'll do something and you don't. Um, but it, you know, for a well constructed. Um, system and process um, it needs to acknowledge the fact that unfortunately counting injuries whilst it is still important for certain processes you actually need to to validate that your risk management system is working and your incident management system is working so that you know when you actually are identifying risks have you, how do you how what is the test that you yourself can validate that it reduces risk to so far as reasonably practicable and then how are those controls that you put in place you know sustainable and effective and, and how do you ensure that so I, I think also this will turn as more um, prosecutions do come out in, in um, you know, so associated with greater levels of regulatory activity against directors. Um, I think there will be a lot more uh, upskilling in what due diligence is, a lot more asked of health and safety people and HR people to um, validate and outline what is in place to prevent these. And then secondly, you know, it, it's going to have to pass the pub test. You know, EAP is no longer good enough. Um, you know, um, uh, you know, the bad apple theory is no longer good enough. Oh, yeah, he's, you know, there was a group of bad apples. No, the barrel is the bloody problem. Um, you need to acknowledge it. And as directors and officers and, and of senior execs, the barrel is your responsibility of creating. I love the agricultural example. Well, nice tie-in. 
Um, <laughs> I, I guess I dream of a future, right? If uh, companies, uh, large, and we're talking about multinationals and government organisations, large yeah. government organisations, uh, if you want to work with these people and provide services uh, to these people, if you have to have an OCHEALTH health and safety si- management system and show that you know it meets, meets a certain standard, uh, I guess my dream is when things like um, the code of practices come out and we have ISO 45003, that at some stage they'll be like, how are you looking after your people? And EAP won't cut it. We need to see how you're identifying and managing risk. Where's your um, you know, mental wellbeing action plans for the next three to six months? Yeah, and, and look, I think the challenge with with with, sta- with with any form of standards, it's implementing another barrier of entry into the market. Um, and, and so it needs to be balanced around the impact that such a standard will have. Um, you know, for example, you know, a lot of the other, a lot, a lot of large corporations with, with very high standards find that their contracting pool is quite tiny because they have such high, such high levels. So, you know, um, one of my roles, um, with a major minor was to assist smaller subcontractors meet and pass the, the subcontractor pre-qualification process. Now, often that was not about, you know, here's a form, take my logo off, put your logo on. It was actually around helping them understand the principles of, of what they were trying to do. And, and often in the processes that they had, be them informal often a lot of the time, um, you know, you didn't have to overcomplicate things, but it took, um, you know, a, a, unfortunately a, a high degree of understanding to get back to first principles and then working with that business owner to to enable them then to tender for those contracts um, and often this happens in um, uh, you know in trying to increase indigenous um, organizational um, within the supply chain so you know often companies will, will say well look we want to put a certain amount of local spend into to contracts or we may want a certain amount of spend with um, you know local Aboriginal organizations that are owned um, but then the system gets gamed and then you have sometimes um, you know, um, silent partners who are not operating. And, and so they, you know, it looks and smells and feels on paper, but it's not having the outcome it is, which is increasing, um, you know, Indigenous engagement and, and Indigenous, um, you know, employment. So um, I, I, a very long way in saying that, unfortunately, while systems and standards are, are fantastic and they help us validate, um, ultimately we don't want to lose that those systems are really codifying the principles um, that we should be looking to embed in our business to both um, reduce the risk of not um, reduce the risk, which is both consequence and opportunity of realizing the objectives of our business. Um, and so ultimately, it does come back to risk management. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm really yeah interested to see how it all plays out over the the coming years. Uh, I think there's a long way to go, obviously. Uh, and on that, I guess um, we're talking about how HR and HSC can work together. I, can't, I know we've gone on a couple of little tangents here, uh, but I think you know leadership support, understanding how boards make decisions, understanding uh, what drives um, uh, organisational decision making is very important. Uh, but I guess does there need to be change in how health and safety work together uh, with HR, or uh, and, and if it does, I guess. Um, uh, well, if it, if it doesn't, I guess it's a very simple answer. No, it's great. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. Mm. But if change is required, what are some things that you think we could do that would lead to that change? I, I think the big one is to acknowledge for, for health and safety professionals is that often HR are your upstream. Um, I find that often if, if you think at the very back of workers' comp, that's injury and, and sort of, you know, um, 
mitigating illness. I think as you sort of work upwards from the curve, you know, then there's the, the, the prevention of harm and then you've got, you know, sort of um, how do you make people thrive. Um, I think the same continuum exists in, in HRIR and ER. Um, and so I think the thing to acknowledge is the fact that we're not in competition. We're actually, um, you know, able to both work together and the positive byproducts when it works is good. So to give you an example of, of where greater collaboration and connection can be made um, is, for example, in the areas of pre-employment medicals. The aim of pre-employment medicals is to assist and understand and generate a health baseline so that we do not put an individual into a role that their medical condition precludes them from being able to undertake safely. Um, you know, that can be abused and, and, and could be used as a screen to, um, you know, to, to lower diversity of the applicant pool, but also at the same time, um, that can also assist um, HR in generating a quality pool of applicants that are able to stay in the job and thrive in the job. And so, and the reason of how you build a very good pre-employment medical screening process is by working with occupational medicine provider um, to, to actually outline here is the risk profile of the business um, and the role that these people are going into and then, and then working with them as to then help um, you know, screen and establish that baseline um, so that those people who are successful and, and, and go through the process um, are able to, you know, use and leverage that medical um, for personal reasons, as in to get healthier, and, and or they may wish to go and visit their GP if it flags something. But also, um, let's say if they're below the line um, that we set, they, are, they may still be able to succeed and thrive in the role, but we may need to adjust the role. Um, and so this process is not a one and zero approach. Um, you know, that is a very good example where, where, where both safety, um, which may be trying to prevent all injury from a zero harm perspective, needs to trade off to say that, hold on, no, we, need, we want a more diverse and inclusive business. Therefore, we need to accept more risk into our business. And therefore, we will need to modify our, our roles and our workplaces to, to accept that. So um, those are the connections there that, that I think really work well um, to, to sort of, you know, deepen, um, but also acknowledge that it's not a patch process. Um, and, 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 you know, another example is where, you know, let's take workplace bullying, for example. Um, often when we're doing an investigation of workplace bullying, it is around does it meet the legal definition in a fair work, um, you know, HR context. We don't acknowledge um, that often there is a different test for workers' compensation, subjective test, that is very different. And often if, we, if, if the formal legal HR investigation acknowledges that there was no bullying, um, which may well be the case by that definition, that person may have suffered harm and may have an illness. And so then putting that person back into that environment and back under that load, which clearly they've been medically, um, you know, diagnosed as being unable to take, that, that, that's just negligence. Um, we're putting someone back into harm. Now, you know, I, I acknowledge that, you know, um, people may not want to believe that, but, you know, it also, if we only treat bullying and harassment as a single isolated event, we miss those individuals who also may be, um, you know, perpetuating this on a systemic level or whether there may be a cultural issue within the business that then, that then, deems, it, that then deems it acceptable and maybe you've seen the tip of the iceberg. So I, I think that, um, you know, to me, whilst I think 
a lot more can be done. I think the connection needs to be deeper, but also I think there needs to be a bit of a suspension of, of, of patch and also a suspension of I own this area and a suspension of I can only um, you know, add value to the business um, through my way. Um, and, and, and often you will find that, you know, where people aren't confident or may, there may be less data to support as to why and how they're adding value, that's where those, um, you know, that, that fear and patch protection comes in. Yeah, well, that, those are two really great examples. Um, and hopefully uh, as we talk to other professionals in the field, then we start to really uncover this because it's obviously key, you know, um, health and safety and HR do need to play together. It's not just yeah. HR's role, it's not HSE's role, it's actually everyone's role. Um, but both have, as you say, very um, particular strengths and, and understandings of, of um, specific issues. So if they can join those strengths together, then you know we're hopefully going to make a more dramatic impact on the the outcome, which is improving employee wellbeing. Exactly, and, and you know, it, it, this doesn't mean that individuals who do perpet- who do commit acts of bullying and harassment, you know, are write offs, and they need to exit the business. You know, we need to follow a, a just culture process. Um, you know that that then affords both the ability for for the victim to also be acknowledged, but also the the individual to also grow and be able to um, you know able to you know improve. Because uh, I'm sorry, the person I was at 18 versus the person I am now is very different. Um, and, and this comes back to it, it, often it's the individual is put into a role, um, is promoted into a role, is selected by the company to enter their business and work in their business. And, and so oftentimes, no different in, 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 in well-being, but oftentimes when it does come into where individuals have, have not behaved well, um, you know, that is a factor of their environment that they have been in prior. And so it is contingent upon the employer who brings them into the business that they need to assess that they're going to contribute no harm to, to others in the environment because that is their duty um, as a PCBU under the legislation. And, and so, um, you know, whilst, you know, not giving a free pass to everyone who does, you know, behaviour that is, that is a, a sometimes absolutely abhorrent um, and is vindictive and, and is premeditated, um, you know, there are genuine individuals who, 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 you know, are put into situations which, you know, a promotion is very attractive. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they take on more responsibility um, and sometimes individuals are set up to fail. And so that outburst and that person micromanaging you may just be out of their depth and they're, they're not getting the support they need. So often we only see the, 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 the sort of the, the field worker as, as sort of the, where risk comes from. But I think that's the other thing psychological health and safety is, is helping us with is that this is right through our organisation and it's not just the tip of the spear, the people serving our customers or moving things around. Um, you know, this is just as likely to hit a CEO or a board director or, or, or a non-executive you know, as much as somebody who's going through a divorce, um, you know, in field. Yeah, and as you point out there as well, when you look at issues like bullying, harassment and and sexual harassment, um, it's not, that is not the only hazard necessarily. Like you say, it could be a range of hazards, organisational culture, leadership behaviours, recruitment processes, all of these things are different hazards uh, and we need to understand it's the combined impact that is going to lead to the negative outcome, not just the um, the, the single issue around bullying and harassment. Yeah, because we're not trying to get people sacked. We're also not trying to be perfect, but you have to create the environment that, that enables people to thrive. So throwing a party, you know, and not providing water or soft drink or light drinks, food, and providing heavy amounts of copious alcohol with a, with a you know, on-tap bar for a Christmas party is probably not a good environment. 
Um, yet we often wouldn't do a risk assessment or treat that as a health and safety um, issue. Um, you know, so 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 that's the, that's the sort of things we need to start thinking into account. And and the other one is around we have a, a huge amount of technology available to us, and we're you know conversing through email, text messages, um, video chats, and all those sort of things. And and more and more will this um, I think trust based uh, economy come forward. And so mm-hmm. you know we're, we're going to have to get used to people screening our emails for keywords. Um, you know, people will be well. Why are you know you as a manager calling your direct report at 10:30 at night. Um, you know, this this is a sort of data that we can pull right now through platforms that we currently use. Yet we're not leveraging it for, for good. Um, and so I think that's the other pressure that will be placed upon um, businesses is around acknowledging that both we can do more, um, but there will oftentimes be a trade-off um, in the fact that we haven't done this prior. And, you know, not many people will like the fact of, you know, their emails being trawled, um, even though in their employment contracts, it clearly states they can. Um, so I think, and, you know, that does often erode trust in between businesses and individuals. But, um, you know, uh, often this is where ethics comes into it, associated with health, safety and well-being. Um, there is always a trade-off. Um and that's the hard part of, of what we deal with. Um, and, and that's where society steps in and goes when the trade-off's um, too high. Um, for example, what we're seeing now associated with mental health. Um, and so that's the other thing I think is around the political activism that, that both we undertake in a business and change, but also separately as our role as citizens and, and through our voting rights is really important. Yeah, it's got to pass the pub test, as you say. But um, I guess there's, there's still so much to be done. Um, we're clearly not at that level where we're dealing with uh, psychological health and safety at a systemic level. It's it's still, again, more focused on the individual, more reactive. We need to get more preventative. Yeah. And clearly HR and health and safety have you know various skills that they can bring to the table. And hopefully uh, we continue to find ways to, to work together and, and combine the approaches because we're obviously stronger combining those strengths uh, as compared to working uh, in compartments. Correct. And that's and that is what our, you know, executive leaders want to see. They are accountable for, you know, all the whole array of metrics associated with all of our functions. Um, but ultimately that you know, the, the key the key metrics associated with, you know, operating in a capital market is social license to operate and return on investment. Um, and, and by managing this risk better, preventing, you know, mitigating and then creating conditions for thrive, um, you know, we'll do that. And so I think, you know, if you are in this role or you're in the professional, maybe even if you're just entering, I think it's an exciting time um, to be in the role. Um, but also it's very contingent upon yourself to, to, to go and be educated in these different fields so that you do find when you when you are given a voice, you're either able to speak um, from a position where of evidence um, and when you're advocating for certain positions or both acknowledge when potentially you may not have sufficient evidence or understanding and you need to put your hand up and bring others in um and so i think that's that's the other key thing is if you don't feel like you know if you don't feel like you have all the answers you're in for a good company because i think everyone is is sort of working this through um you know and ultimately you know um you know the only way we do get better collectively as an industry and as a country is acknowledging that and improving um so you know it is a process it is a learning journey but you know in saying that, we can very much accelerate the curve, considering we've done similar for, for physical safety um, and for other forms of health that we can um, you know, bring into organisations. 
Mate, you should be hosting this show. I think that was a very good way to probably sum up, I guess, what we were talking about today. <laughs> Look, your time is very valuable and I'm really um, glad and, and appreciate uh, the time that you gave us today to express some of your expert opinions and obviously very experienced and that really came forward uh, in, in what you presented today. So thank you so much. No worries. Thanks for having me and I'm looking forward to the next episodes. Yeah, great. Hopefully uh, you'll be tuning in and and remember everyone, you can subscribe on uh, Apple, Spotify, Google, all the usuals. Um, Also, just remember we videotape this. So if you want to see Wade's burgeoning uh, goatee, then make sure you get onto YouTube and and check it out. We'll be sharing some clips as well on our own LinkedIn profile. So feel free to follow myself, uh, Joel Mitchell, Wade Needham, or connect with us. We're friendly people. And also you can follow the Flourish DX LinkedIn page as well for regular updates on psychological health and safety and the podcast. So that's it for the week. Thanks again, Wade. And thanks to the audience for tuning in. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.